You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I just keep, I say this every week, but never gets old. It certainly never gets old, old Robbie there. He's going, go, go, go every week. Good morning. Well, you are with us, and we are involved in a series of messages that we have titled All Systems Go. All Systems Go. And that's why we're playing that every time that we, are, we gather together for this particular purpose. And we want to kind of tell you that we've kind of gotten stuck here, haven't we? Kind of got, got, got stuck on the church. And what we're doing, what all systems go is, it's about, it is a systematic theology. In seminary, anybody that goes through seminary has to take a course called Systematic Theology, and it's the thickest book that I had in, 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 in seminary, and it's one of the most difficult courses, obviously, that you take uh, as a seminarian. And systematic theology is taking the 10 or 12 major doctrines of the Christian faith and starting systematically through the Old Testament and all the way to the New Testament to look at the, trans, the, the, the uh, uh, what is that, not transgression, but the uh, transition okay, of understanding as God continues to reveal Himself and really what the Scripture says about that holistically. So we talk about salvation. Well, how do, how do we understand that from an Old Testament, New Testament perspective? We talk about the Scripture. How do we understand that? About three or four weeks ago, we got on this, the topic of the church. Ecclesiology, that is actually the, that is the uh, theological term for it. And it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word we translate from the Greek New Testament into English as church. And it means those who are called out. And we got to the church, and we've just kind of been stuck. This is actually the third message uh, in, uh, in church. In fact, it's the only one that we've actually spent more than one week on. And when we started this, I really told Derek, I think we'll probably just do this in one week. But then I thought, no, we need to do it in another week. And then after that one, I said, you know, we've got one more in us here because we just there's some more territory that we need to cover. And I think that the reason for that is because of all the doctrines of the faith, the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, is the one that there's the most confusion about. And so we said the first week, we bit, first two weeks, we, we talked about, well, who are we as the church? Who is the church? And the first week, we focused on the fact that we are the called. And that's the meaning of ecclesia. We are the called. We are the called of God. God has called us unto Himself. The Scripture says in the Old Testament that He called a nation, Israel. In the New Testament, He has called us in Christ, called out of, called out of death, called into life, called out of darkness, called into light, called out of the kingdom of the world, called into the kingdom of God. And so we spent the first week understanding what does that mean to be called of God. The next week, last week, we talked about the six metaphors that are in the New Testament. There are others, but six major metaphors that help us understand a little bit more about how Jesus sees His relationship not only to us as individual believers, but to us collectively as the ecclesia, as the church, universal as well as local. And so we talked about the fact that we are His bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, that we are the branches and Jesus is the vine that gives life, and Jesus is the foundation, and we are the building. He's building His, his body, uh, that we are the physical body, and He is the physical head. In other words, like the body has many parts, there are many of us and different parts, but it is the head who is Jesus that gives instructions. Jesus is our high priest, He's our great high priest, and yet He's called us to be a kingdom of priests. So Jesus did what the high priest in Israel did every year on the Day of Atonement. He went in on the cross into the Holy of Holies and made sacrifice for sin. But where the Old Testament high priest had to do it every year for himself and for the people, Jesus did it once and for all, finally on the cross, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, making atonement once for all, and has now become our high priest before the Father. And then He called us to be priests. He called us to be a kingdom of priests. Because you see, a priest's job is to be a mediator. That's right. So Jesus came as our high priest to mediate and open the way between us and God. And now He sent us out in the world 
to be His priest mediating the gospel to the lost world. So we spent the first two weeks talking about, okay, who are we? And we've been putting this against the backdrop of a statement that I know many of you have heard before. I've heard it for over 40 years from people. It goes like this. I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I love Jesus, but I don't care for the church. Sometimes they say, I love Jesus, but I don't care for organized religion. I don't care for organized religion either, but I love the church because the church is not organized religion. And so we've been putting it against that backdrop to say, is that a statement that you can honestly and with integrity, when you match that statement up against the Word of God, does that statement really make sense? I mean, if Jesus, if we're the church of the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, you say, well, I want the bridegroom, but I don't want anything to do with that ugly bride. That's not going to get you very far with the bridegroom, is it? Nope. If Jesus is the vine and you say, well, I want the vine, but I don't want to be hanging around with all those other branches. Or, and, and, and Jesus is the shepherd, but I don't really care for all those ugly sheep that are his. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. It's a foolish statement to say, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church because of the relationship that Scripture establishes that we have with Him. Now, this morning we're going to talk about, okay, then why are we here? Why doesn't Jesus just take us to eternity when we come to Christ? Why does He leave us here on earth? Why does He call us together as the local expression of His body? Why does He do that? What are we supposed to be about? And we're going to give you four things this morning. And I want to tell you, this is one of those messages that's just a whole lot better than I intended it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, when you, when you do this week after week, there's some subjects and some messages that you just sink your teeth into and you just go, man, it starts flowing. You go, oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. And then it really kind of just goes over like a lead balloon on Sunday. <laughs> but it was a great t- time putting it together. And then there's some messages that you go, you know, this is necessary, but this isn't going to be all that good. Mm-hmm. I just don't really plan on this being all that good. And about, about Thursday, I went to Derek and I said, Derek, this is going to be a whole lot better message than I intended for it to be. And he said, I think I, I feel the same way. And, and, and as we taught it this morning, even more of it, we've done all our work individually and together, but as we were doing it this morning in the first service, even more of it just started coming together. Yeah. So I want you to see this in kind of a systematic way this morning. What is it that we're here for? Why the church on earth until Jesus comes? The first one is I'm going to use the word adoration. I could have used the word worship. But worship has a lot, that idea has a lot of uh, uh, baggage to it. So I'm going to start off with a word of adoration because that is what worship really is. We are here, understand, first and foremost, to give honor and glory to the Creator of heaven and earth to worship and adore Him. Psalm 150 is one of the great psalms. It was a praise psalm. Praise the Lord. The psalmist says, praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. and Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Let them crash, He says. Praise Him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see, put simply, we are called first and foremost as individual Christians and collectively to be a people of praise. We are to be marked in this world and set apart in this world first and foremost by our worship of the living God, mm. by our adoration of the one true God. Now let's go all the way back to Genesis 12 for a moment. And that's when God called Abraham. Abraham lived in Ur the Chaldees, and he was an idolater. He worshipped many gods, as everyone did. And God came to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm calling you to reject all of those gods and worship only me. In the midst of all of this idolatry, I'm calling you out to worship only me and to trust me. And if you'll do that, I will take you to a land... And I will show you this land, and I will bless you and your descendants, and I will give that land to them, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. Now that nation that God was creating was the Hebrew nation, later to become called Israel. 
okay? So what was the first and foremost thing that God called Abraham to do? Worship me and worship only me. No other gods. Now fast forward centuries later. Moses now is leading God's people back into the promised land that they had one time lived in. By this time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel have been established. And then they went into Egyptian bondage for 400 years. Now God called Moses. And Moses is leading them out of Egypt into the promised land that God had promised Abraham before. They stop at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And God gives them, through Moses, His law. He gives them not only the Ten Commandments, but He gives them the Levitical law and the ceremonial laws and all those things that they are to do. What was the very first commandment that God gave His people in Exodus 34? For this one, Jesus won't work. That's the Sunday school answer. Always just say Jesus. Jesus! He gave us Jesus later. No. He gave them that commandment to worship Him and to worship only Him. Mm. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So what he said to Abraham, Abraham, worship only me. He now, when he gives the law in Mount Sinai, he starts it off. This is the foundational thing that you are to be a people of worship and you are to worship only me. Now it was all through the history of Israel that this is where things went south for them in the area of worship. They might be doing all kinds of things right, but the one thing they were doing wrong was worship. And God always disciplined His people when they went off the tracks in the area of worship. Do you know why they struggled so badly? Why did they struggle so badly? You're going to tell us. I just figured it out. Okay. Because Chris Tomlin and Michael W. Smith hadn't been born yet. Hadn't been born yet. (laughs) That's right. They didn't have worship songs, but they had David. That's true. That I is. mean, you know, David was a pretty good worship leader and he was a pretty good worship writer, but they had everything that they needed, okay? Yet it was always in this area when they, when they would turn away from worshiping the true God, they would turn to worship idols or they got ritualistic in their worship. That's when the hand of God would come and discipline His people because the foundational issue is worship. And then later, by the time we come to Jesus, they weren't worshiping false gods at that time, but they had turned true worship into a very rigid, strict, empty, ritualistic thing that they just walked through with their eyes closed. Mm. Mm. And you know, when Jesus came after the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus didn't go after them because they weren't obeying. They weren't keeping the law. They were. In fact, the Pharisees were keeping the law to the minute degree. He came after them because their hearts were far from God. Jesus always condemned the Pharisees, not because they weren't doing the right things, but because their hearts were not right, because worship had gone south. So in that parable that Jesus told in Matthew 21 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus told this parable of the the vineyard and the the, the vine grower who turned it over for a group that didn't do it very well. And, and, and then finally Jesus, when He came to the end of that story, He says, He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you mm. and will be given to another people. Mm. Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God that was invested into Abraham and his descendants and to you is going to be taken away. And it is going to be given to another people. Ethnos, the Gentiles, the nations, the rabble, us. We get grafted into the tree. The kingdom is taken away from them. Why? Because they failed because of their hardness of hearts to recognize the Christ, to recognize the Messiah. It wasn't that they weren't doing a lot of good things. It's that their heart was far from God. They failed at the chief purpose which was the worship of the true God. And they'd they'd really reduced it down to empty rituals just kind of going through the motions. In fact, Jesus indicated that in John 4. 
when he had that encounter with the Samaritan woman. Remember the Samaritans were the the result of Jews historically intermarrying with pagan nations. And so they were half Jews. And so they had their own little area, Samaria there in the Holy Land. And Jews hated the Samaritans about as much as they hated Gentiles. And so the Samaritans, they set up another temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's where they worshiped God. And then the Jews uh, had in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has this encounter with this woman at the well. And she, she perceives that he's a, he's a rabbi. He's a holy man. And she immediately starts talking about worship. And she says, well, your, your people say that you are to worship in Jerusalem, and our people say that we are to worship in this place. And, and she wanted to get Jesus off the track because Jesus was getting a little too close, a little too personal, you know, with revealing what she was really doing in her life. And then Jesus said this. This is so great. Jesus said, God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Don't be talking to me about what mountain you're supposed to worship God on. It was never to be reduced down to a time and a place and a ritual. But now God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. To worship Him in spirit, not in a location, not with a certain posture, but from the inner being. True worship, folks, is always inner worship. It has nothing about the time, place, location, or physical posture. But also, he says, we'll worship in truth. Truth about who God is. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping, if you're worshiping a false god, or if you're worshiping a definition of God that is not true to Scripture. Who, so in truth about who God is and, and about who we are, that God seeks for us, get this, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And there's always this push for us to move away from true worship in spirit and in truth. You know why? Because our flesh does not want to submit to God. That's right. The sin nature does everything it can to destroy true worship. Because in true worship is the one time when you empty yourself of yourself and you put all of the attention upon Him. You see, the flesh is constantly working. So every generation has its aberration. It has its, its, uh, its, its uh, thing that comes along that seeks to destroy true worship, seeks to humanize it. And, and it's happening in our day. It very much is, and it's a very subtle the way it happens. It has nothing to do with style of worship. It has nothing to do with whether you use the drums and the instruments and all that. It has nothing to do with that. Here's what it has to do with. It has to do with why you worship. What is the purpose of worship? And when the flesh gets involved in that, it always distorts the purpose. Now, I want to use this as an illustration. She is by far not the only one that is guilty of this. But she verbalized what is really going on in a lot of places in the Christian church in America. Victoria Osteen. Joel, you know, you understand, is not my favorite theologian because he aren't one, okay? But a few years ago, Victoria, on the stage with him, made a statement that became quite controversial, and they tried to walk it back. But what she was doing, she was honestly saying what she really believed and what she really felt. In that moment of honesty, it came out. And listen to what she was saying about worship. She says, I want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. No, that's the only way to look at it. She says, we're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. God, God must not be uh, taking a whole lot of pleasure. pleasure. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of happy going on in COVID. So God's not been very happy during COVID because there's not been a whole lot of God takes pleasure when we're happy? You got a chapter and verse on that for me? She said, that's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, she says, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. She said, when you do good, it makes you happy. And that just makes God happy. And then she says this, when you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God 
happy. And then the big amen and the entire crowd of 40-something thousand burst out in applause and went, Oh, dear God in heaven, that is heresy. That is such a twisted and distorted view of what worship is. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that God is happy when we're happy. What does he say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various, various trials. trials. When they burn you at the stake. Forgive your, those who persecute you and pray for those who put you to death. Oh my soul, that is heresy. That is humanism. You know what the definition of humanism is? Humanism puts a human being at the center of the universe. That's worship that puts me at the center of worship. And I was, God never intended for worship to be about me. It is about Him. Yep. And if there's the byproduct that I am lifted up spiritually in worship as I should be, or maybe I am taken to an, a mountaintop, well, that's wonderful. But that is not, not why we worship. Right. We worship because He is worthy of praise. You want a true picture of biblical worship? Am I doing better than I did the first service? Not really, am I? It's okay. Look in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 starts, this is what true worship starts. It begins with awe in the presence of the holy God. That's what true worship is. Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's, he's talking about a vision that God gave him. And he was high and he was lofted up and exalted and the train of his robe was filling the temple and the seraphim stood above him, these weird creatures that had, you know, six wings and three pairs. And he says they had six wings and with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, which is a sign of humility and submission in the presence of royalty. And then with two they flew. And one called out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke and Isaiah was on his knees. This is why you can use smoke machines in worship services. That's right. This was the original smoke machine in Isaiah chapter 6. So there's, that's what worship is. True worship is awe in the presence of who he is. Second of all, that awe leads to an acknowledgement of sin. You see, when we see him as he really is, then we are able to see ourselves as we really are. When we see Him as His holiness, we can see our flesh in its unholiness. And this is the first thing that Isaiah said. He said, woe is me. I, Isaiah didn't get happy. Isaiah wasn't happy in the worship. He was in awe. He was on his face before God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live a among a people of unclean lips, and for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, I have been in the presence of the Almighty, mm. and I am ruined by it. Because his reflection shows me what I really am. Yeah. Then one of those creatures took the tongs from the altar and touched his lips and, and cleansed him. And, 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 and then the third part of worship is acceptance of mission. It says, then Isaiah says, after his confession and after his cleansing, it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, man, the only thing I could do then is say, here, my Lord, send me. See, that's, a, that's what true worship is. True worship is when we are in awe in the presence of him. And it doesn't make us happy all the time. It convicts us of who we are. Right. It reveals, it shines the mirror into the darkness of my own humanity outside of Jesus Christ and leads me to brokenness and confession and then the forgiveness. And then God says, now get up and go for me. That's what worship is. It's not about making God happy and it's not about making me happy. And it is the first job of every individual Christian and the church together. It is the worship of the living God. Now, get this. It flows in sequence. The second purpose of the church is obedience. You see, the primary purpose of worship isn't to be happy. That can be a byproduct. Primary purpose of worship is to lead us to obey Him. You see, God raised up Israel to worship and obey. It says it over and over. Worship and obey. Not just worship and then go live the way you want to, but worship and then obey. Not just obey and never worship, but worship 
and obey. Mm. For either worship or obedience to have any meaning at all, they must be together. And one must flow out of the other. Deuteronomy 6, God said to His people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words, which I, now it comes to obedience. After this loving Him with everything you are, then, then these words, which I'm commanding you today, they, they should be on your heart. You shall teach them to your, to your sons and and, and you shall talk about them as you lie down and as you rise up and bind them as frontals on your forehead and all of this stuff. He says, after worship, loving God with everything that you are, then obey. Now, let me give you a truth. Important truth. Obedience that does not flow from worship is not obedience. It is legalism. That was the Pharisees' problem. They had all the dots, I's dotted to the T's, crossed of what they were supposed to do, but it didn't flow from a love and admiration and awe in the presence of the living God, so it became legalistic. On the flip side, worship that doesn't result in obedience isn't worship. It's ritual. So obedience that doesn't flow out of worship is not obedience. It's legalism. But worship that doesn't result in obedience is not worship. It's ritual. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, so often, folks, we don't really have an obedience problem. We have a worship problem. Mm. you got to get that. Man, I just can't seem to obey Jesus. What's your worship like? How much time do you spend in the presence of the creator of heaven and earth bowing down in awe and adoration to receive nothing? We don't really have an obedience we, problem. We have the spirit of the living God living within us to enable us to obey. We don't really have an obedience. We have a worship problem. That's right. And when you try to obey without preceding it with genuine worship, it's not going to work. You see, two closing thoughts. God first called His people in the Old Testament to worship Him. Now get this. When He called Abraham, it was about worship, wasn't it? Do you realize how many centuries it was later before He gave His law for them to obey? There were centuries before they had the law that they were already the called people of God. And their number one job was to not worship the gods of the Amorites and the Moabites and to worship Him and only Him. And it was not until centuries later that He gave them the law to obey. When we put obedience before worship, we have missed God's order. So worship, that's our number one priority. Then obedience. And then that leads us to the third. The, the third thing, before I go there, I, I mentioned this first service, and I just think it's worth mentioning again because it's such a clear picture that I'd not considered until first service. Um, which is, when you consider the first murder in Scripture, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, um, there's, an, there's an obedience issue there, obviously, with Cain murdering his brother, and, and God comes and talks to him. But think about what is, the, what is at the root of that issue of obedience? It's worship. Cain is offering the wrong kind of worship to God. Abel is offering the right kind. This is what leads to this whole conflict. And so this obedience issue is actually rooted in a problematic version of worship. You have God. Abel put worship the way that God said to do it. Cain said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. It's such a clear picture of, of exactly what you're talking about. Number three, the reflection of his nature is the third purpose of the church. We are to reflect the nature of Christ in everything that we do. Now, the question becomes, how does this how does this work itself out? How does the church practically reflect the nature of Christ? Is there like a checklist that we have? Like, how, how do we accomplish this task? I'll give you a hint. It begins with worship. We go all <laughs> the way back. We're going to keep going back to the beginning and developing this thing further because we, we want you to understand the progression here that is at play. All of these points build off of one another. You begin in a place of worship. That's the starting point. Adoration for who Christ is. And that worship leads me. It, it births within me the desire to want to obey Him. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we what? Keep His commandments. 
In other places, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for him, our adoration for him, develops into commandment keeping, a desire to want to obey. And then the question is, what is the result of that obedience? The result of that obedience, then, is the reflection of his nature. That's how it happens. Reflecting his nature is not something that you actively do. It is the result of already obeying him and his commandments. So let me give you a truth, and we'll work this thing out. A church that rejoices in the work of Christ and responds to the commands of Christ will then reflect the nature of Christ. Just as an individual Christian will. Absolutely. True for the individual, true for the church. When you rejoice in the work of Christ and you respond to the commandments of Christ, you will reflect His nature. Okay? So I want to talk about some examples here for this part. And and I think this will be really helpful for many of you in understanding the practical effects of obedience to the Lord. We don't just obey for the sake of obedience. That would be legalism, like James just said. We obey because we love Him, and then the effects of that obedience also has a real-world application as well. So what are some commandments that we are given as the church to participate in or to fulfill? Number one, we are to forgive. Can we agree there? Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can agree there. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, "...be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another," there it is, "...as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this commandment is for the universal church. Remember, we said a few weeks ago that Ephesians is a book written not to the local church, but to the universal church. And I can prove to you that this is actually written to the church and not to an individual, because when Paul says at the very end of that phrase, as God in Christ forgave you, the you there is plural. In other words, what he's saying is forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave y'all. That's grammatically correct in the Greek. So again, as we have received forgiveness from Christ, we are to give forgiveness to others. We are to be kind and compassionate. That's an act of obedience. Now, can we agree on something? Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Forgiveness is hard. It's not, it is not the instinctual thing for me to do to want to forgive someone who has wronged me or hurt me. Yeah, when you, when you hurt me, my first response is not to forgive you. No, it is not to It's not like, oh, that really hurt. I can't wait to forgive that person. I just want person. to slap you. Exactly. Absolutely. So listen. I'm just being honest. Yeah. So when you. I know, you're a bunch of saints out there, but. But I want to slap. Right. I, I do. I want to slap the person. So when, when you do forgive, check this out. It's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Forgiveness is kind of shocking. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, talking about the forgiveness that we receive in him, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. I love the word here for stumbling block. In the Greek, it's the word scandalon. It's the word from which we get our word scandalous. It's scandalous when we actually forgive. It's a scandalous thing. It's controversial <laughs> because it's so unexpected. It's so counter yeah. to the human instinct. So, so listen, When you obey this commandment and you forgive others as you have been forgiven, you are reflecting the nature of Christ to that individual. Mm -hmm. You're reflecting the scandalous love of God to them. Number two, here's a second command that we could talk about, discipline. We are to discipline those who walk in unrepentant sin. This is a, a command of Scripture to the church. It's a very unpopular topic that a lot of us don't really want to talk about. And you will hear people, uh, when we do talk about it, say things like, you know, it's just so uncaring and unloving to do that. And, and let me just say, it can be uncaring and unloving. shouldn't be, but it, it can. shouldn't be. It can be. Again, if we go back to the progression here and we begin in a place of adoration for Christ that develops into a love-driven obedience for Him, then discipline actually becomes an act of love. It's actually a loving thing for all parties involved. What is the purpose of discipline? Let's talk about that for a moment because I think there's probably a few of you who have some unclear thoughts. Get a pound of flesh. To get a pound of flesh, yeah, that's that's not one of them. uh, Oh, that's not one of them. That's not one of them. So let me give you a few reasons why why we practice it, why the Scripture gives us this commandment. Number one, to protect the church, to protect the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about a specific individual in the Corinthian church 
who was active in a type of sin that was very harmful to other individuals and was unrepentant about it. And Paul says straight up, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Hard words. In fact, he goes on to quote Deuteronomy 13.5, even harder words. He says, purge the evil person from among you. That is not going to be found on a coffee cup in Mardell. I'm just saying. (laughs) You're not going to see that. Purge the evil person from among you. He then goes on to give the reason for why you do this. 1 Corinthians 5.6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, do you not know that a little bit of sin that is unchecked will infect the whole body? Sin poses a threat to the purity of the body. And so Paul says, get them out of here in order to protect the sheep, protect the flock. Get them out of here. Number two, it not only, it not only protects the church, it warns the church. This is a difficult one as well. It serves as a reminder to us of the severity of sin. If we're not careful, we can become numb to the severity of sin, right? We can become numb to the consequences of sin. And so church discipline reminds us of those consequences. You know, it struck me, as you said, that that text in 1 Corinthians where Paul is telling them to put this person out, they were doing the opposite. They were celebrating. They were them. celebrating them, yeah. But they were so cosmopolitan and so grace-filled yeah. that, yeah. oh, they're just letting it go on. And he says, it Mm-mm. should not be so among you. And that gets that is the distortion about what really church discipline is all about and yes. what its purpose is. Grace is the response to sin that is confessed. Sin that is celebrated is an affront to God. Yeah, it's met with discipline by the church and by God, which is what we're going to find out here in a moment. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, they may re- so that the rest may stand in fear. So what he's saying is, look, in other words, when someone is removed from the church, things get real, don't they? All of a sudden, we're like, well, hold on a minute. This is the hospital church. Y'all deal with all kinds of depravity. Well, let me, let me address that for just yeah, a second. Let yeah, me yeah. say again. What we say here, understand, because we have practiced church discipline, and we are the hospital church. We have practiced church discipline, and we will continue to do so when it is warranted, when someone is unrepentant. Yes, sir. I say, we say, this is the most unsafe place to hide. If you want to come here and live a double life, we will find you out. We will root you out. It will not be a safe place. If you want to live a double life, uh, coming here and looking good on Sunday and then going out and just living like a hellion, we're going to find you out. It is not a safe place to hide. The church is never intended to be a safe place to hide. It is intended to be a safe place to heal. And it's the safest place to heal. And when you come in genuine wanting to heal, this church and this body will take you and walk you through. But if you want to live a double life, it's not a safe place to do that. And that was the way the New Testament church was. And to be clear, I said this at the welcome, June, in June, which is about a week away, I will I thought have... thought you were fixing to call no, no, no. June Barker, <laughs> no, no. our worship leader. I, I will have been on staff... <laughs> For 13 years, 13 years in this place, and I can count on one hand the number of times that we have had to remove someone in the way that we're talking about right now. And this that's is, usually because when the person decides that they want to live that double life and they're found out, they just they discipline themselves. They yeah. remove themselves. Yeah. But in the case of one says, no, I'm going to continue to have this adulterous affair and I want to come to church on Sunday and I want to teach a Sunday school class. No, you're not. No. No, you're not. That's probably for the elders. It's a very officially put out of the church. It's a very rare thing, but it, but it does happen and it is necessary. And we believe Scripture is very clear about it, and so we practice it. It it's done to protect the body and to warn the church of the severity of the consequences of sin. But number three, and this is so important for our context here this morning, to restore the sinner. So understand, uh, Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians 5, 6, he begins with, again, some really hard words. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. He continues on in verses 14 and 15. He says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. This is, again, talking about removal removal, distancing from that person. But then check out what he says in verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, it's the loving thing to do. Yeah. Because that's what the Father does with us. He's not your enemy. He's not, he's not, this is not meant for condemnation. The goal is not condemnation. The goal is restoration. The goal is, the hope is that by being cut off from the fellowship and the community, that it reveals to that person the true cost of their sin and it leads them 
to repentance. And check this out. When they repent, if they repent, what is our response? Forgive as you have been forgiven. You go back to the square one. What are we to do? We're to forgive. When this happens, we reflect the nature of Christ. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. I love this. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. People get upset when we talk about church discipline. They go, well, that's just not loving. That's not what Jesus would do. It's exactly what Jesus does. <laughs> that's exactly what he did. That's what he's saying here. He disciplines. He chastises. What does James 4, 6 say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when someone is walking in sin and they are too proud to confess that sin, God opposes that person and he tells the church to do the same thing. When there is humility and repentance... Instantaneous grace. And he tells us to do the same. You see, obedience to these commandments reflect his nature. We reflect his nature when we forgive. We reflect his nature when we discipline. Third, we provide. We provide. 1 John 3, 17 and 18, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? If you've got what it takes to provide for that person and you don't provide for that person, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, this is not only talking about Christians. There are a lot of one another commandments that are meant specifically for the church, okay? This is not one of them. This is talking about all people. Case in point, Galatians 6, 9, and 10, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So especially to Christians, but to all people. Again, we're, gonna, we're just going to keep coming back to this. This action of obedience to these commandments reflects the nature of God. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, 45 and 46. He says, For the Father makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's been doing that for the last 12 years. It's like in Texas. <laughs> for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? I could keep going. There are a lot of other commandments the church has given, but I hope that the point is clear that when we obey that the result of that obedience is the reflection of his nature to those we are engaging with. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5:16, "Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Why would they give glory to God when you do good things? Because you're reflecting his nature. It has to start in worship. It has to start in worship. And, and that, obedience that flows out is true absolutely. obedience, which then truly reflects the nature of Christ because it's not legalism. This is why so many churches, I think, can be so religious and look the part. They look very, very religious, very Christian. And they fail to reach the world. They fail to reach sinners. In fact, they end up inadvertently turning away sinners. And the reason why is because they lean heavily on obedience for the sake of obedience, which is legalism. They lean heavily on worship as a ritual, not as a, an act that seeks to adore God for who He is. And the result of that is they end up not reflecting the nature of Christ. They end up reflecting the nature of man. Mm -hmm. So they don't forgive. They discipline harshly. They discipline with, with condemnation and with finality. There's no coming back from it. They, they don't provide for other people. They look more like Pharisees than they do Jesus. You see, you've got to have obedience. The church has to be obedient, but it has to be the right kind of obedience. Flows out of worship. Flows out of worship. So let me give you a truth. You will know which nature a church is reflecting by how they obey by how they obey, not whether or not they obey. If they're not obeying, they're not going to be reflecting the nature of, of Christ for sure. But you'll know what kind of nature they're reflecting by how they obey. Is it coming from a place of worship or is it coming from a place of legalism? So we have adoration, submission, reflection of his nature. I'll close with this. We'll be done. You know, y'all are, I was thinking about this. Y'all, the second service, if, if you had to describe both services, I would describe them this way. First service is like the theatrical cut of Lord of the Rings and y'all are like the extended edition. Because we have a deadline we have to get finished in the first service. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a deadline with y'all. 
Yeah. Y'all are the uncut version. You get all the director stuff. All the children's ministry people are like, don't say that. Don't say I'm that. sorry. We'll keep going. Give him five minutes and he'll wrap it up because you will, you will appreciate this wrap up. We are to proclaim him. We are to proclaim him. We talked about last week how the church is the priesthood and the, and the priesthood is mediators between sinners and Christ. First Peter 2.9, he says, you're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He goes on to tell us what we're to do in that same exact verse, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're, in other words, as priests for God, we are to share the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel to other people. Now, I want to address a statement, uh, a, a saying, if you will, that is popular among evangelicals. And I understand the, the meaning, the intention behind it. I think it's very well-meaning. I think it's a wrong saying. The saying goes like this, preach the gospel... Use words when necessary. How many of you have heard that, that saying before? Probably many of you, right? Preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Again, I think the, the, the point of it is that it's, you know, when you're proclaiming the gospel, your life better reflect the truth of it as well. But here's why this saying is wrong. Because by that same reasoning, I could just as you know, easily... The idea, idea there is they're going to see what a wonderful Christian I am without a spoken word. Right. They're going to fall down on their right. face before Jesus right. and right. confess Jesus as Lord and right. Savior. Which is not going to happen. And, 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 here's, and here's how you know that. The same reasoning I could just as easily say, feed the poor and use food when necessary. It's always necessary. It's always necessary. You can't food. feed the poor without food. You can't preach the gospel without words. Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 10. He talks about the, the beauty that the gospel uh, can be believed by anyone who receives it, right? He says in, in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Amen. But then he addresses an important question. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? In other words, how are they to call on the name of the Lord if they've never even heard about him? He goes on. He says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And all of you go, thank the Lord, we've got two preachers. That's why they hired us. That's why they hired us. That's right. Wrong. The word here, keruso, it's a word that simply just means to proclaim. It's for all of us, every single one of us. And then he sums it up in Romans 10, 17. He says, faith comes from seeing other people's good works? No. So yeah. faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we are, listen, you cannot preach the gospel without words. The, the, it demands words. The question becomes, when? When do I do this? Now the answer to that is, um, let me just say, any time is fine. There's no real wrong time to share the gospel with someone. There are certainly better times to share the gospel with people. There is a best category, if you will. And I want to give that to you now because it is so in line with everything that we're talking about right now. The best time to share the gospel with someone is when you are walking in worship-driven obedience and reflecting the nature of Christ to that individual. So let me go back to those three commandments that I just gave you and show you how this works out. For example, in forgiveness... God commands, forgive as you have been forgiven. So you go to the person who has wronged you, you forgive that person as you have been forgiven, you are reflecting the scandalous love of God to that individual. Mm -hmm. That is the perfect opportunity to say, hey, I want you to know the reason why I'm forgiving you is because I've been forgiven of many things I did not deserve forgiveness for in Christ. Mm -hmm. And you can have that kind of forgiveness too. And you can share, that's an open door for the gospel. When you are practicing, when the church is practicing, uh, church discipline. This seems like a weird category to, to talk about this, but it's actually the perfect category. When, you, when someone is removed from the church, Jesus says in Matthew 18, he goes through the whole list. Go to them one-on-one, two-on-one, before the whole church, and then if they still won't repent, they are to be to you as what? Tax collectors and Gentiles. Remember that verse? Now, the funny thing is, is that a lot of Christians will look at that passage and go, yeah, they're like tax collectors and Gentiles. Let's just get them out of here and never talk to them again. But when you read the Gospels, who are the people that Jesus is going after? <laughs> tax, tax collectors and Gentiles. So it's actually the perfect opportunity to come to that person as a tax collector or a Gentile and share the Gospel to them. That's the, that's the proclamation that we have. In provision, when you're providing someone for something, you come to them and say, hey, I'm not just a humanitarian group. We're not just doing this because we believe in like humanity or whatever. 
It's because God provides for me. I recognize nothing I have is my own. I'm just a steward. And as God has provided for me, I'm going to do the same thing for you. And listen, God can provide for you for so much more. Have you ever heard of Jesus? Have you ever heard of the perfect open door for the gospel? Most people skip, when we're talking about sharing the gospel, most people skip these first three steps. The purpose of the church doesn't begin with proclamation of the gospel. It begins with worship and then obedience. And then those acts of obedience reflect his nature. And that gives us the opportunity then to proclaim him to those individuals. Are you getting that? And walk it backwards. Walk it backwards. You say, you know what? I just never have an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, perhaps that's because you're not reflecting his nature. And the reason you may not be for reflecting His nature is because you are not obeying, and the reason you are not obeying is because you are not worshiping. Hmm. See, it all goes back to this place, getting in the presence of Him who is worthy of praise. That's right. Seeing Him for who He is, seeing yourself for who you are, and out of that, walking in obedience, reflecting His nature, which as He just said, is the bridge to sharing the gospel. That's right. This was better than we intended it to be. It was. It was also longer than you intended it to be. <laughs> you know, it just struck me this week how it just brought me back. Worship is everything, folks. It is. It Worship is. It's not the only thing, but it is everything. It's practice for eternity. If we do not worship, everything else we will do will be powerless and will be empty, mm. or it will come out of the flesh. It won't come out of the Spirit. Amen. Lead us in prayer. Father, thank You uh, that You provide everything we need to worship You in spirit and truth. Your Holy Spirit and Your Holy Scriptures, God. And we pray that everything we do is, is um, glorifying of You, that You are the not only the main character, Lord, the only character mm-hmm. in this grand narrative. Um, we love You and we adore You. And, and our prayer is that out of our love and adoration for you, that it would inspire us to want to follow what you've said because we recognize that it is for our greater good. Mm. And that in that, you would be reflected to a dying world and that we would see those opportunities to share this good news that has changed us eternally, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See y'all.